Hi, Scott and John here. Yeah, folks, the world is fast approaching the end game, and we are trying to expose the upcoming deception before time runs out. We want to make this a full-time goal, and we need your support to fight the satanic global elite. So here's how you can help. Subscribe to the new Bible Mysteries Premium Podcast to listen to every episode ad-free. Plus, get full access to our special guest interviews and special events, downloadable show notes, our Bible Mysteries monthly newsletter, and access to a new community forum. Sure. So just go to BibleMysteries.Supercast.com or you can click the uh, link in the show notes to get started today. Thanks again. Bible Mysteries. You're listening to episode number seven, The Nephilim, part three. What if there are secrets in the Bible the world doesn't want you to know? Are you ready to take the red pill? And now, here are your hosts, Scott and Zena. Well, thank you again for joining us today on Bible Mysteries. My name is Scott, and this is Zena. And we are here to talk about the secret things in the Bible that the world doesn't want you to know about. And today, as promised, we have with us our special guest, Ryan Peterson, author of Judgment of the Nephilim. And Ryan, hello to you, sir. Scott, Zena, hi. Great to be on. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. We are blessed to have you here, and it's it's a true honor to be talking to you. Your book, Judgment of the Nephilim, has truly been a, a tremendous book for me. Uh, we've alluded to it several times in two previous episodes. And so we've got some questions to ask you about your book and how it ties into the scriptures that you share. But before we do that, I did want to kind of read a little bit about your background from your website. Ryan is a biblical researcher and writer with an emphasis in ancient Hebrew, uh, thought, and theology. He received his BA from University of Rochester and his JD from Columbia University Law School. Does that mean you're actually a lawyer, sir? Yes, it does. Yes, I am. Wow. That is awesome. So, of course, one of my first questions is what got you as an attorney or lawyer interested in Bible research? Yeah, well, you know, it's a very easy transition to go from law school to the Nephilim, right? So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, uh, yeah, so how did I end up writing this type of book or getting into these topics? So uh, great question. So, you know, so I, I, I grew up in a Christian home uh, raised by a Bible-believing mother. And, you know, church was a regular part of my life. So I grew up reading the Bible, studying the Bible, going to church every week, multiple times a week. And so for me, the faith, Christianity has always been first and foremost before my academics, before my career, before anything. And um what really got me to this topic was uh, really at the start of my career, as a few years into my career, I, I was working, uh, doing corporate law, working for a very well-known law firm down on Wall Street. And, you know, I've kind of achieved all the big uh, benchmarks I had in my life, you know, to go to college, go to law school, get a job at a law firm and do all those things. Uh, but it was by far uh, the most spiritually empty time in my life. You know, from a worldly standpoint, I was definitely, uh, you know, high achieving, you know, getting all the marks that you'd want in your career. Um, but I was very disconnected spiritually and just uh, didn't really have, feel like, I didn't feel like I had a strong purpose. And what kind of brought me back to really getting deep into scripture, getting dedicated to God was Bible prophecy. I've always been a big, big, I've always been very much into politics. I've always followed world events. I was a political science major in college. I've worked in the Senate before. 
And what opened my eyes was going to some end times ministries, kind of, you know, like yours and discovering websites that were showing that political events were converging with Bible prophecy. And for me, I was someone who studied the Bible, but I did not study prophecy that much. And so once I saw that those two big parts of my life were converging, it really blew me away. And from that point, I was like, you know, I just started saying I got to really get dedicated to getting back into scripture. I went to a, I started attending a small uh, independent Baptist church outside of New York City and started teaching. And that got me into studying and researching. And once I got into it, it was kind of like everything that God had trained me in from a secular standpoint. I was able to use all those things. I do lots of research for work, for school. And so it was like all the tools that I had, it was very easy to translate that and take it over to scripture. And there was a ministry I bought a lot of DVDs from. We were talking about on Revelation, One World Government, uh, on the Antichrist, the Rapture. I, I would buy DVDs from uh, this ministry, CuttingEdge.org. Uh, you know, I, probably dozens of them. And one day they sent me a free DVD in a package called The Nephilim Among Us. I knew nothing about The Nephilim, nothing about Genesis 6. This is going back about 13 years ago. Okay. And it just blew me away. Once I understood scripture in this way, it just changed my whole perspective on so many things, you know, the flood, uh, the wars in Canaan, and it just, it really drove me. And I, I, I just want to know everything about it. And the more I researched, the more, one thing I understood, there were two things that came to my mind was that one, a lot of the sources, whether it's DVDs, whether it's books, whatever, um, were basing their conclusions on the Bible, plus a lot of the apocryphal books, a lot of the extra biblical texts. And I would go to people at church and say, hey, you know, you, you got to learn about the Nephilim. This is really interesting stuff. And they say, well, I looked at this article, but it's quoting things outside of the Bible or it's quoting things from Sumerian texts. And it, it wasn't so it, people didn't trust it. So I wanted to make a book that you can bring into any church Bible study small group, and it's 100% based on scripture, that you can make the case for this supernatural interpretation just from the Bible alone. Um, and I think the Bible is actually the most superior source of this information. Absolutely. And then I felt, um, which led me to my second point, my second motivation was I felt like there was a lot of points in scripture that actually related, that this actually weaves throughout the entire Old Testament and into end time prophecy. Yes. And I felt there was a lot on the, on the, on the, you know, on the table that wasn't being discussed. And I'm like, I want to bring out all these points in one book and show that how this, this battle between these two seeds declared in Genesis 3.15 weaves throughout the entire history throughout scripture, um, all the way to the second coming of Christ. And so uh, that, that's where that led me to writing the book. That's so fantastic. Well, I'll tell you, uh, much of what we're doing here with Bible Mysteries is not only looking at that mystery itself of the Nephilim and the seed and the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, but tying in other mysteries that kind of get overlooked in the Bible. And it's interesting that your focus was on the giants and, and yet the, there's so much else, too, that they affect, you know, the, the whole prophecy of the seed. So it's really uh, every time we we have a, an episode, it's almost like some point we're going to be referencing the fallen angels or Lucifer as a fallen angel yeah. and what's going on in the world today. So it's, it's really, again, I can't emphasize enough how great the book is. And of course, I'm going to tell our listeners again, how to order the book for themselves if they want to. Uh, but so that covers what your interest in the Nephilim was the end of, what was it you said? The, the, the free DVD you got was from 
cutting edge? Yeah, it was called, it was a very it was called the Nephilim Among Us. It was uh, Mac Dominic was the person who did it, and he was I mean, and it was very uh, simple. It was him at a whiteboard with a red magic marker writing yeah. notes on the board, and that was it. And it blew me away. <laughs> it was very low tech, but very effective. I learned much Bible truth through a man teaching on a whiteboard. So there you go. Amen. Amen. And a true blessing for itself. Well, so I'm, uh, I've got some questions I want to talk to you about in particular, and we're going to get to more specific things of the book. Sure. I'm, you know, I'm a little conspiratorial minded sometimes myself, you know, and so I often wondered that if, uh, obviously, if the the Nephilim truly were in the Bible and and there were in fact giants that uh, dominated men, subdued men, uh, were murderers of men, and everything else, uh, and even uh, could have possibly eaten them, according to the Book of Enoch, you know, or Enoch. Um, I wonder if you think there's archaeological evidence, such as skeletons or whatever, uh, armaments, weaponry, that uh, is being hidden from us today by governmental systems of the world. Yeah, so it's a great question. I think it's very possible. So for me, when it comes to the archaeological record, I looked at two things. One, and I quote this, some of this in the book, is that it's interesting that when you look at, say, uh, Roman historians, you know, like Tacitus, first century, first, second century AD Roman historians who are very detailed. And we have a lot of material from that time. Right. They'll, and even Josephus, who, of course, is Jewish, but was working for the Roman Empire. Uh, they write that the bones of giants were basically museum items that you could go to certain areas and see the bones of giants. Even in scripture, when it talks about King Og, it says that his bedstead was on display in the capital city of the Ammonites. So, so the idea that, the, you know, this is well known and you have, so you have, I think it's, I think it's really compelling that you have Roman historians who have no, they have no interest in Christianity. They have no interest in Judaism. Right. You know, they are total pagans, but yet they're saying that you can find these giant bones were on display at that time in their empire or various cities throughout the Roman empire. And then, so, so certainly there's a record that they were existing, you know, centuries after the days of David, Joshua, the Canaanites, and all those things. And then um, I think the monoliths that we have all over the world, you know, um, you know, I put the image in there, the, oh, the, the picture of Gilgal Raphaim, for example. Right. Or, and, you know, I put the pyramids on the cover of the book for a reason. Exactly. You know, when you look at the megaliths, the monoliths all over the earth, these structures that were built, you know, with, you know, stones Machu that weigh multiple Machu tons, Machu Picchu, right? And the consistency of them, that they're a lot, you know, whether they're pyramid shapes, we're talking about mounds, that they're very similar in their geometry, um, I think that goes back again to the antediluvian era, the days of the fallen angels and all that. So I think that's the evidence that there's, there's still tangible archaeological proof of the giants, of their existence, and certainly the fallen angels. And, and this, this transfer of knowledge, that's what I believe what it was all about, the seduction to get these, these human women as brides, I think it was based on giving forbidden knowledge that the fallen angels were offering to humanity. Exactly. Well, so the... It, it, Obviously, much of that evidence, if it did exist, as you just stated clearly from the writings of Roman historians, from the records of scripture about being on display in the, in the cities of, of Canaan and, and uh, to the west or to the east of Jordan, um, there's clearly could be some evidence somewhere maybe possibly being hidden. I, I often joke that yeah. maybe if you could go to the basement of the Smithsonian, you'd find some giant bones, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it, it, yeah. The possibility that maybe there's just a, a, a continual satanic cover-up 
so that it doubts it, it, the word of God, you know. It's definitely possible. Um, I mean, because, if you know, it's the same thing with the UFO phenomenon. Is the government going to reveal everything they know about the UFO phenomenon to the public? I highly doubt that. <laughs> Similarly, because these things, you know, it opens a whole new way of life if people just knew these things exist. And it's the same thing, right? If we knew that there was actual skeletons of Nephilim that are in the Smithsonian or in a laboratory somewhere, right. that's going to open a lot of questions and certainly change the whole perspective of, of the world, right? And, and, and a lot of my current research is about that exact concept, because I believe that what's taking what's going to take place in the end times, when we're talking about the day of the Lord, the great tribulation is you're going to see it's going to be a return to the days of Noah, where you're going to have the fallen angels are going to be openly manifesting before humanity, just as they were in the days of Noah. So that's going to change the way people see society. You know? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. In fact, that's one of my questions for you, because yeah. I, I truly believe since you referred to it from uh, Matthew chapter 24, when Christ refers to as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the days of the Son of Man. He makes a reference to the fact that they were marrying and giving in marriage. And the only yes. reference to marriage in the days of Noah was Genesis 6 and the sons of God and the daughters of men. Do you believe there's a tie in that God, that Christ was drawing a connection to the sons of God and the daughters of men, that something similar could be going on in the latter days? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, so... Um... So my current research, so I actually just finished the sequel, The Judgment of the Nephilim. You must be working on another book. I was going to say. Yeah, I just finished it, actually. So I just finished it. And so um, so I'll announce the title on your show. So the title is going to be The Final Nephilim is the name of the is the going to be is the name of the next book. OK. And so it deals all with the end times. And so what I think so going right to your question. So I think it's interesting. I think what. God says something very interesting in Isaiah chapter 46, that he is in this chapter, he's rebuking the Israelites for their idol worship. And so God says, God says, I'm going to demonstrate why I am different from the fallen angels. What makes me, how can you know that I really am God? He says, he says, who is unlike him? Who is like me declaring the end from the beginning? So God is saying that I'm going to tell you, I've declared the whole end times, how this world is going to end from the beginning. And of course, God can do that because God stands outside of time. God knows all. But that is what he's putting his name on that, saying, I can tell you the end from the beginning. I think that there are certain events we can look to. And Jesus tells us, look to the days of Noah. And you're like, to your point, Scott, that who was the they that was marrying, giving a marriage? It was the fallen angels, the Benachah Elohim the sons of God who are angelic beings. Uh, and so Jesus is telling us that is going to happen again. And we see, right, we're told that these angels who committed this fornication, you know, they're the, they are a subset of the greater one-third fallen angels who rebelled with the devil. Exactly. Unlike the devil who can just travel to and fro on the earth, who still has access into heaven, he's the accuser of the brethren before the throne of God. These angels were cast into the abyss. The Genesis 6 rebels were punished immediately. That was the flood. The flood was the judgment of the Nephilim and their, their fathers. And they were dragged down by the floodwaters into the abyss. And, of course, the testimony of Jude, Second Peter chapter 2, tells us where they remain under chains of darkness. Well, guess what? When we get to Revelation chapter 9 at the fifth trumpet, that we see an angel fall who opens the bottomless pit. And you have these beings, these locusts emerge. They're called locusts, but they're told, first of all, they're told not to harm the grass, which locusts eat. 
And they're grotesque. They have the face of a man. They have the hair of a woman. They're these hybrid grotesque beings. And I, my whole thesis in the book is that these, this is the return. These angels have now been released because we're told that they're left for the judgment of the great day, which is the great tribulation. And they're going to be unleashed back on earth. At the same time, Revelation 12 tells us there's a war in heaven. Right. With and that's when, that's when Satan is finally permanently evicted from heaven by Michael after he loses this war in heaven and his angels are cast down. And what does it say? It says, woe to the inhabitants of the earth for the devil has come upon you having great wrath for he knows his time is short. He has but a short time. The fifth trumpet, we're told, is the first of three woes. When the devil is cast down, we're told, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. So I believe we see it's just like the flood. When the flood happens, you had the flood waters come from the fountains of the deep, the windows of heaven opened, and the waters came down. In the end times, it's going to be a fallen angelic flood. You're going to have fallen angels coming from hell, from the abyss, right. and then you're going to have fallen angels coming from heaven openly before mankind. Wow. Yeah. In fact, I think that when you reference Revelation 12, at the point of which... Um, the angels come down. It looks like in that war in heaven with Michael and the dragon and his angels, they're cast down to the earth. They seem to be confined. I agree with you about that. And at that point, when the devil knows he has little time and he has great wrath and he goes after the seed of the woman or the remnant of her seed, rather. Yeah. And it says he opens his mouth and a great flood comes out. Exactly. That's only a reference to those angels. Exactly. Exactly. See, and, that's, and that's the beauty of, of, of scripture is that you know, time, you know, time, I talk a lot about time in the new book and how time to God is not obviously not linear. Exactly. I think time to God is like a scroll. And so God tells us that he, Jesus says he's beginning and the ending. He's telling us to end from the beginning. So everything is like a cycle. So we see the, the flood, the flood was a was a, a judgment, but a foreshadow of an end times judgment that's going to come. And so just as we saw angels mingling with men, Daniel 2.43 says they shall, they, again, that's here, we, that they again, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, that end times kingdom, which I think is a fallen angelic kingdom being led by the Antichrist. And potentially the 10 kings of, of exactly. are the angels themselves. Or I, t I as, completely agree the prince agree of that. Persia, the prince of Grecia was in Daniel. Exactly. Those you, almost, 10 you almost pre, uh, pre guessed my questions for you because <laughs> Daniel 2. And, and when they mingle themselves with the seed of men in that reference, did you believe there's a possibility that there's going to be an attempt to commingle the genetics of angels with men at that time? It doesn't Absolutely. There's going to be time for that in the seven years. But what is your thought on that? Absolutely. I think it's absolutely going to happen. I think that the way I think it's going to be twofold. I think it can happen two ways. Right. Because, again, you will have angels. We don't know how they're going to present themselves. We, they get cast to earth, but we don't know how they're going to. They may not come ready to fight humanity. They may come saying, hey, we are your saviors. We are benevolent beings from another planet who've come. We've watched you all this time. We created you. And now we're here to advance you to the next level, right? And so they may use deception, right? So we know from Matthew 24, again, Jesus said, let no man deceive you. We know from Second Thessalonians chapter 2, there will be a great, a strong delusion is going to come on the earth. And so we don't know. So they may use that and say they have a way of evolving us. But also, I believe the ultimate way it will happen is through the Antichrist, who I who I believe is the final Nephilim. He is the other seed of Genesis three fifteen. Right. God so told us there be two seeds: the seed of the serpent. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, Satan is going, is waiting until the Great Tribulation to have his seed, the Antichrist. And you know, when you look at Revelation thirteen, 
The interesting thing is that at the, the, the aspects of the Antichrist that gets the world to really worship him and see him as unstoppable, invincible as God, right. is his resurrection. He has a satanic, where he says he, he, he receives a deadly wound that's healed. And that's when the world says, who is like, who is like unto him? Exactly. And so I think it's at that point, of course, that's when he takes over the world and he institutes the mark of the beast. And I think ultimately the mark of the beast, in addition to controlling commerce, obviously buying and selling will be genetic, that it will alter the genetics of whoever receives it. And this is why there is no redemption once you take the mark. I mean, Revelation 14, you have an angel on traveling the earth announcing, if you take the mark, there is no redemption. Anyone who takes it, there's no turning back from it. So, which I think is a repeat of Genesis 6, that a part of the agenda of Satan in Genesis 6 with the Nephilim was to corrupt the human genome, to make us something other than human, other than image bearers of God. So a human savior could not be born to prevent the birth of the human Messiah who would conquer him. In the end times, fail, having failed at that, now it's about corrupting us from, from being saved from that Messiah and being fully corrupted again via the mark of the beast. And, and, I, you know, and I go into great deal, detail into this in my new research that you know, the Antichrist is just a mimic, an imitation of Jesus Christ. Right? right? When you think about our salvation as Christians, it is not just spiritual. It is physical. We are going to shed this body and put on, he says, we shall be like him when we see him. So our body, we know that we're going to have a resurrection body that's going to be like the body of Christ. It's going to be an immortal celestial body. Exactly. And so similarly, as we will take on, the, 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 it says that we, even, we take on the divine nature. We will have an immortal body that's born of God. It's like our spirit is born of God. Our body will be born of God. Right. The Antichrist will say, hey, you know, I have overcome death. And if you take my mark, you can overcome death too. And so take the mark and live forever. Exactly. Right. And so it's the same offer from Genesis 3.15, from Genesis chapter three, when Satan told Eve, ye shall not surely die. Right. It's immortality. It's all about achieving immortality absent God. And that's the offer. And I think that will take, if you take the mark and take on his genetics, you can also partake in overcoming death like he did. And I think we even see a hint of this uh, again at the fifth trumpet, because I think everything culminates at the fifth. To me, that is the midpoint of that is the midpoint. That is when of the the time of tribulation. Exactly. That's when the Antichrist becomes the full fledged, satanically empowered, doing false wonders. It's at the fifth trumpet. And that is the time when it says that men shall seek death and shall not find it. So. Those those same locusts, right? exactly, exactly. So they get a temporary immortality that for five months, where men are trying to die, and so it's almost as if the Bible's telling us the, the people who choose to pledge themselves to the Antichrist for a time can't die, even though, even though they want to. That's so fascinating, Ryan, because when when I think about that, you're you're making my head spin with ideas because, <laughs> and now of course I can't wait to see your next book. But I'm, I'm thinking about um, how in the end times, uh, during that period, at some point, uh, and it may coincide with the fifth trumpet that you're talking about, I'm not recalling when that is exactly, but I know that at some point that um, 144,000 appear to go up 
with Moses and Elijah. It could be that there's a different time, but I know in the middle of the seven years, Moses and Elijah send up. I'm guessing that the 144 go out with them and the remnant of the seed run and hide from persecution. But from that point forward, it looks like in the last three and a half years, no more is a gospel of salvation being preached, but rather simply an angel flies through heaven. And the only message called the everlasting gospel is don't take the mark, fear God and get out of Babylon. Right. So that would tie in perfectly with what you're saying, that if you take the mark, there's nothing, there's no hope you. and, And I never even put together that by taking the mark, you become literally genetically tied to Satan. So that brings up another question for me, for you. And I have a feeling I know where you're going to go with this. But (laughs) so in in light of what Christ said in Matthew 24 about the days of Noah and the marrying, in light of Daniel chapter two, do you think it's possible, and this is one of those kind of crazy questions, if UFO abductions are in fact real, and I have no way to prove they are or not, But if they're real, it seems like those who have been abducted claim some sort of genetic experiment has been performed on them. What if it is, in fact, fallen angels traveling in these vehicles that are abducting people, conducting these experiments in preparation for this genetic manipulation that they plan to put on people through the mark? Do you think there's any relevance to that at all? Hi, we hope you're enjoying the podcast, but I want to take a moment to remind you of something very important. There are secrets in the Bible the world doesn't want you to know. And the world is fast approaching the end game, and we want to expose the coming deception before time runs out. Freedom of speech is under attack, and evil elements within governments and multinational corporations are trying to prevent you from learning the truth. Scott and I are being censored by social media platforms as we speak. This is true, so you can help us use the satanic global elite's own tools against them. Subscribe to Bible Mysteries Premium Podcast so the controlled media can't shut us down. We can use our own platforms to help expose them and keep you informed. But to do that, we need your support. Help us to go full-time with Bible Mysteries. Just $7 a month gives you every current episode ad-free without these annoying appeals. You also get full access to our special guest interviews and special events, downloadable show notes, our Bible Mysteries monthly newsletter, and access to the community forum where we answer your questions. Just go to BibleMysteries.Supercast.com to help us stop the assault on Christianity and free speech. And don't forget, you can always donate any amount to support us at utbnow.com. These gifts are tax deductible. Thanks again, and here's the show. Absolutely. I think that the, uh, the, the UFO phenomenon is a spiritual, it's a spiritual dimension phenomenon. The people who are having these encounters and, you know, and, uh, John Keel uh, who was a famous UFO researcher, UFOologist, who was the, the basis for Fox Mulder and the X-Files. Uh-huh. You know, his research, he started off, uh, you know, compl- I guess really basically like an atheist and just thinking that these are beings from another planet. And by the time he finished his 30 years of research, he was convinced that this was actually a spiritual entity. These are spiritual yeah. entities. And, said he, and he compared them in his writings to demons. He said they behave much more like demons from the Bible than interplanetary beings. So I think the UFO phenomenon can play a huge role in the end times. Because again, we don't know what the delusion is going to be, how they're going to present, how these beings are going to present themselves. And it could be that they say, yes, we're, you know, we're, 
from Alpha Centauri or we're from Venus or whatever may, the case may be. And so I think it definitely ties in that. And I think even now, because, uh, you know, I, you know in, in Judgment of the Nephilim, I, you know, have a chapter about the demons in scripture are the spirits of the dead giants, that the dead Nephilim, the demons are their dead spirits. So it's no surprise that if demons are the ones masquerading as aliens or doing these abductions, that they are looking into genetics and reproduction and doing all sorts of tinkering with people's bodies. And even in, that people have an experience to say, okay, I had, I had this encounter with an alien and they were going to my reproductive organs. And so it doesn't surprise because that's, that was their agenda. They were created to, for that agenda to corrupt again, to corrupt the, us as image bearers of God. So I think all this actually ties in together to the end time great delusion. Wow, that that's really amazing. And, you know, I, it, it just makes my head start thinking about so many other paths this could go, because uh, I think about the fact that, you know, in your book, you talk about the importance of rivers as as almost an angelic portal. In fact, the uh, the Jordan River uh, yes. being a place where uh, um, possibly there's sort of this sort of something of a spiritual portal. Uh, and perhaps not only for God's holy angels, but for fallen angels to somehow communicate. And you, you present the idea that one of the reasons why the giants and the Nephilim of the post-flood world, such as the Anakims and everything else, all seem to border around the river uh, in their nations and Canaan and every place else, seem to be trying to tie back into a connection to those uh, angels. Um, do you think that when Jacob had his dream and called the place Bethel, of the angels ascending and descending, even though that was only about 15 miles west of the Jordan River, do you think that holds true as well, that there's that connection to a river type portal? Definitely. I, I, I just think, you know, and going back to your last point, you know, in, in the book, I call the Jordan River the area 51 of the Bible. Oh, yeah, there are right. so many angelic manifestations either in this river or at that river. So you mentioned already Obviously, Jacob at Bethel seeing angels ascending and descending. And remember, the, the etymology of Jordan in Scripture, it means their descent. It's the place of their descent, a descending. So even the name, and we know certainly in the book of Genesis and even the early books of the Bible, names have extreme significance in Scripture. So we have that. We have Elijah, of course, uh, being fed supernaturally by ravens, the ravens, carnivorous birds, carrying meat and bread to him, delivering it to him at the Brook Sharif. The Brook Sharif is a part of the Jordan River. That's right. You have uh, Naaman, the Syrian uh, you know, military leader. He, wanted, he had leprosy, which was a death sentence in the, in the ancient world. And Elisha tells him, dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And he comes out healed from leprosy and a believer. Uh, then you have... Um, you know, I, I also point out the, I think the greatest, you know, manifestation. Uh, oh, and also not to mention the fact that the Jordan River was the, the border of the promised land. So you have Joshua doing a supernatural parting of the Jordan River. And then you have, of course, the baptism of Jesus Christ, where he's in the Jordan River. John the Baptist, of course, is baptizing him. And there you have heaven open. Mm -hmm. God speaks from heaven. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, like a dove, he descends onto him. Exactly. And of course, God says, this is my son whom I am well pleased. So uh, speaking, and people could audibly hear God the Father. So it's clearly, there is, that is to me, the, the, the obvious confirming evidence that there was a, over that river and in that river, there's so many things connected to it being 
a supernatural portal existing at the place of their descent. So I submit that that is where the Genesis 6 angels made their landing spot was at the Jordan River. And that's why it's called Jordan River to begin with, because it was the place of, again, where they they, of their descent. Right. That, that's so interesting. And, and also the fact that um, Zena brought this up. Actually, today we were discussing a little bit in, in show prep. And she asked a question about the water and the rivers related to angels. And we did an episode about the sea of glass. And I talk about the three heavens of God. And there seems to be the frozen firmament of water between the third and second heaven. Absolutely. Separated God and his holiness where his throne is from the corrupted universe. And typology plays in so importantly in the Bible, just like names do in the etiology of names. Uh, I was thinking about, uh, and she sort of hinted at this in her question, could the Jordan River almost be a type of that frozen sea and the heavens opening, you know, that kind of thing. So you were were asking about where did the river play in in that respect, you know? Absolutely. Oh, man, you guys are talking my language now. This is, I'm all about typology. You got, I'm so much of my research in the past year has been on all these types. And, yes. and you know, cause God says, I, God says in Hosea that he speaks through similitudes, right? They were, he's giving us these pictures to understand not just the end times, but to understand the heavenly, right? Cause everything on the earthly is modeled the heavenly. So I think it's a huge role. I think it's totally, even the idea of, of, the Red Sea opening of the Jordan River opening and parting. So it's like that separation will eventually, it's like the veil being broken in the temple at Christ's crucifixion. It's all these things is telling us that these are all types. When things are parting and opening up, showing you a glimpse into heaven. Exactly. And obviously the ultimate that will take place when Christ returns and we have, you know, the new Jerusalem come down, but these are all foreshadows of that. Exactly, exactly. And and another beautiful type is when Paul in Galatians talks about Jerusalem above, which is the mother of us all. Exactly. Sarah and the child of promise. So it's it's just a beautiful picture all the way around. Typology has become so much more important to me now as I've studied over after many years of so-called rightly dividing the word of truth, you know, and missing Mm -hmm. the forest for the trees, you know? (laughs) I I think it is the, it is, first of all, I I really think of it as God's language because God's giving us pictures all the time. And there's, and it's so important. I think it's, it, it opens up so much more of scripture to see things that way. And and one simple example I point to that we just take for granted is John the Baptist when he sees Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God that take away the sins of the whole world. Right. You know, we hear that because we see so much imagery of Jesus as the shepherd holding lambs. And so for us, it just makes perfect sense living in modern times. But at that time, to call him the Lamb of God is saying, this is, he is the actual lamb that all the lambs that for the last 1500 years that we've been sacrificing at Passover, that lamb, this is, he is that lamb. That when Abraham told Isaac, when he was taking him up to offer a sacrifice, that God will provide a lamb, this is him. And so he's telling them this, that all those, all those sacrifices were just a type. It was all typology. This is the fulfillment. And so I think that's that's what God, that's how God communicates all through scripture. So, you know, that picture you're talking about to me and I, you even reference this in your book, The First Judgment of the Nephilim, which is um, that at the garden, when Adam and Eve did sin and after they tried to put their blame on each other, uh, at one point, God says he closed them with coats of skins. <clears throat> and while we talk about the spiritual aspect of their death, even though Adam ended up living 930 years, I can't help but think about the fact that when he said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die, that Adam's mentality about that death would have probably been a physical death. 
and yet he didn't die. But to get coats of skin, something had to die in his place, as it were. Exactly. To me, that was the first sacrifice picturing Christ and was probably a lamb, if you want Absolutely. to really yeah. carry yeah, that's, the, that's... the typology through, you know. Powerful, powerful typology. I agree completely. Unbelievable. Well, um, I, I, don't, I know you may have some questions, Zena. I don't want to hog it all, but... Uh, I think you asked my question. <laughs> excellent. Well, I, I did tease her a little bit today when we were talking in our podcast about how you deal with Naama and Lamech and the first... So I would like you to share with us your thinking about how you came or explain how you came to see that Naama, the daughter of Lamech, could be the first wife of a fallen angel that produced a giant. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, um, you know, a big part of, again, you know, kind of my motivations uh, in writing the book was I really wanted to the reader, us as a journey together, it, I thought it's a very slow drive through scripture. Because I think there are some, there, we breeze through a lot of the early chapters in Genesis, but there are some key details in there. And so in Genesis 4, you have the lineage of, through Cain, through the, the line, the lineage of Cain, obviously the wicked son of Adam and Eve, who's banished from, the, from Eden altogether. Correct. And what I talked about in scripture, that when you look at these early lineages in the Bible, Certain people are, you know, most generations, you might have two to three generations in one verse. You know, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and so on. And, but certain notorious and infamous figures are given multiple verses. And so, and I call those special references. And the first time you see that in Genesis chapter four is in the seventh generation from Adam through Cain in Lamech. And again, this is Lamech, who is, this, who is a descendant of Cain, not Lamech, who is the father of Noah in the godly line. Correct. And... There are six verses dedicated to this man and just his family alone. And I think what we see there is that this was the generation. I call them the first family of the Nephilim, that this was the this was the generation where the fallen angels made this transaction to take a human woman as a wife to birth the Nephilim, the first Nephilim. And it's amazing what you see is that not only does it describe all of his sons, it, first of all, there's, I think, lots of biblical clues. The first thing we see is that he was the first polygamist on record. He, he violated God's marital covenant, covenant. He had two wives, Ada and Zillah, um, in violation, obviously, of God's plan of one man, one woman, eternally yoked. Then uh, he was a totally in, in rebellion against God. He boasts about killing a man. He mocks the mercy, the grace that God had shown Cain and God put the mark on Cain to, to protect him from anyone who tried to avenge him. And Lamech says, if, if, if Cain was avenged sevenfold, Lamech will be avenged 70 and sevenfold. So he's a very arrogant and boastful, clearly a man in rebellion and says he wounded a man to death. And then when you look at his sons, his three sons were all described in detail. You see this technological explosion, as I call it, where you have his three sons, Jabal, who was the father of animal husbandry and tent making. Right. Jubal, who created music. I mean, if you think about music in the Bible, you know, Psalms is the biggest book in the Bible. Music is a huge part of the Bible, a huge part of heaven, a huge part of worship, a part of our spirituality. And Jubal invented music and instruments. And even the Jubilee, the term, the root of that goes back to the etymology of his name. Right. And then you have Tubal Cain, who was the first blacksmith. He invented blacksmithing, forging tools, forging weapons, all these things that can make humanity more reliant on themselves and their own power than on God. 
And then you have this little interesting detail that says the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. And it's just amazing because she's the, when you look at the lineages again in scripture, you don't see sisters being mentioned often or women being mentioned often. And she is the first sister mentioned. And in fact, I talk about the fact that, you know, from the, from the birth of Adam to the flood, you know, 1,656 years of biblical history, there are only four women mentioned by name. Eve and the three women from this particular family, Ada, Zilla, and Nama. And so, um, so I submit that Nama, that this was Nama was the first bride. And the reason why she's mentioned is because she was the woman, the first woman offered to a fallen angel in exchange for all this knowledge. Um, and that's why I called them the first. So she was the first bride of a fallen angel and the first mother of a Nephilim giant. And uh there's also the, the, one other thing I like to do in the book is, and I'll go to it now, that is like I really wanted to bring out the fact that in when you look at Christianity through the centuries, from the church fathers to the 1700s and 1800s, the church theologians and pastors were much more bold in acknowledging the supernatural aspects of scripture. And so I really wanted to highlight that a lot of the things I talk about in the book were the common belief of the church. And so there's one passage, you know, for example, this is uh, from Professor Robert Jenkins writing in 1721. And I think there's, you know, there's a real treasure trove of books and resources that really highlight these things that are just mind blowing. And so he wrote, I'm just going to read a quick quote from him. He wrote, Moses seems to refer to some things that happened near the beginning of the world as well known in his time, as in Genesis chapter four, verse 22, where he says the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. For no probable account can be given why Nama should be mentioned, but because her name was then well known among the Israelites for some reason, which it does not concern us to be acquainted with, but which served to confirm the relation. Some have delivered that Nama, by her beauty, enticed the sons of God. Wow. And so, you know, that's 1721. He just hit it right on the nail of the head that she was the one who seduced the sons of God to commit this fornication and that led to the birth of the Nephilim. So, so your point really is that this is not just some recent crackpot theory. This is exactly, <laughs> that is exactly what I am saying, Scott. That is exactly what I'm saying, my brother. Yes. I'm not just getting this stuff out of, out of thin air that this is, a, this has been a common understanding. And so, um, it really you know, again, it just sheds a lot more light on scripture. Absolutely. And, and, and kind of tying into that, but somewhat separately, uh, after the flood, we, we see the account of Noah and his sons, and then we know that Ham did something wrong. And yet, who's cursed is the son of Ham, Canaan, not Ham himself. And you posit the idea that there must have been something about Canaan that was curse worthy. And uh, you explain in the book that uh, since there were giants in the days of the conquest of Canaan, after the original giants had been destroyed in the flood, obviously we can't say that the angels came down again and took the daughters of men. And I posit that considering what they saw happen to their brothers, the other one third of the bad angels wouldn't have taken the risk to go in chains in hell again in the abyss. So, um, the DNA would have transpired over potentially through the wife of Ham. But where do you think the fact that Canaan was cursed might be an indication that he exhibited the traits of a giant uh, in his youthfulness? Or where do you where do you take that? 
Yeah, it, that's exactly where I take it. So I, I, I do believe that Kanan did exhibit that. And that's why Noah specifically chose to curse him. Because if you think, I mean, Ham had many sons. He wasn't like, it, it wasn't like Kanan was his only son or even his firstborn son. And yet Noah singled him out. And so I think that is why. So, I, yeah. So I definitely believe that the Nephilim DNA traveled through on the Ark um, through the wife of Ham and that Canaan. And the interesting thing about Canaan is that, you know, I, fi- I find Canaan to be one of the most mysterious figures in Scripture. His name appears over 275 times in the Bible. Yet there's no action or quote of Canaan at all. We, we never get a description of anything he ever does, and he's never quoted actually saying anything. And yet his name is all over the Bible. And, you know, you think about the promised land, you know, even when I was a kid, we sing about the land of Canaan, like it's a good thing. It's not a good thing. But yet the promised land is the actual promised land itself is named after him. So clearly he was someone who was extremely significant, but yet we see nothing about him in scripture. And so what I show is that when you trace the lineages of the post-Diluvian giants, they all trace back to Canaan. And so the wars against the Canaanites, the wars that Joshua fought, it wasn't just some just go in there and kill everybody. It was a targeted attack against the lineage of the Canaanites. Because that is where the, def- the Nephilim DNA was found after the flood. Absolutely. That is just so fascinating. Well, Ryan, of course, I've got like a thousand other questions for you. <laughs> and we're out of time. We, we try to keep our podcast to a certain amount of time. But I certainly hope that you would be willing to come back again as a guest on your next book, which you just mentioned is going to be released shortly. Do you have a publishing date? Yes. Yeah, so Lord willing, it will be probably after Thanksgiving, first week of December. It'll be oh, available. Fantastic. Just in time for my birthday. Right. All right. Good. Good. I'll make sure I send you a copy. I'll send you a copy. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. I'll be happy to go purchase it. But you're so kind. And speaking of the books, I do want to let people know now that are listening that Ryan's book is available right now at judgmentofthenephilim.com. It was a number one bestseller in two categories at Amazon.com, where you can also purchase it, too. So it's that good. And if what he said today doesn't entice you to want to go look into it, I don't know what it takes to float your boat. But uh, (laughs) now I'm so excited about the new one. I can't wait. And Ryan, I just cannot thank you enough for being here today. Scott, Zena, thank you. This was awesome. This was a great, great discussion. And uh, whenever you want me back on, I'm happy to come on again. Thank you so much. Well, listen, I encourage you all to go check out uh, the podcast today. Remember, you can go to utbnow.com. That's Unlock the Bible Now. UTB Now is short for that. If you want to learn more about what we talk about here in Bible Mysteries, and don't forget to check out Ryan's book. And Ryan, we will look forward to seeing you again when your next book comes out. So till then, we're going to say goodbye till next week. Zena, thank you. Of course. All right. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye, Ryan. Bye. Take care. God bless. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to Bible Mysteries and share it with a friend. If you want to learn more, you can go to Unlock the Bible Now. That's utbnow.com. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to Bible Mysteries Premium Podcast. You can even gift a subscription to a friend. That's right. Remember, just go to BibleMysteries.Supercast.com to join and help us expose the satanic global elite, or make a tax-deductible donation at utbnow.com. 
We need your help to fight the global censorship of the truth. Thanks for your support.